We come this Lord's Day to that portion of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Let us be absolutely clear that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Apart from any work of righteousness that we might perform. We can add nothing to the finished work of Jesus Christ as to our justification, as to our acceptance before God. He alone is our righteousness. However, having said that, let this be added. The gift of faith which God graciously gives to all those He effectually calls unto Himself is never alone. That is, true saving faith is never unfruitful. It always brings forth the evidence of its own existence by works of love toward God and toward one's neighbor. Faith without works is dead, says James. James might just as well stated, doctrine without practice is dead. Is dead orthodoxy. Dear ones, Where there is true spiritual life in the soul of a man, woman, or child, there will not only be a hungering and thirsting to know and believe the truth of Christ, but also an intense desire to practice the truth of Christ in every area of life. And where, dear ones, there is No practice of the truth in the life of one who professes to be a Christian. There will be indeed the smell of death as the soul decays and rots from the corruption of unrepented and unforgiven sin. One of those accompanying works of true faith in Christ is that of perseverance. One who possesses true saving faith may stumble or fall into sin, but he will not remain in sin. With broken and contrite heart, he will flee to Christ for forgiveness. He will bemoan his sin. He will hate his sin. He will renew his covenant with Christ, and he will persevere in fighting against the devil, the world, and the flesh. You see, because he is united to Christ, just as a branch is in the vine, he will be pruned. And the pruning process, dear ones, is painful at times. He will be disciplined. He will be taught and instructed throughout his Christian life as he grows in grace. But as a result of being pruned, he will bring forth more fruit to the glory of Christ. Of that we can be assured. Persevering faith is the conspicuous grace that is evidenced in our text this Lord's A grace for which, dear ones, we must continually pray. And a grace for which we must continually be thankful when we see the evidence of perseverance in our lives. Do not overlook it. Do not count it worthless. Do not not consider it to be a small account. Because when we repent sincerely before the Lord, when we are drawn into Christ, after we see we have failed Him, we have sinned against our wife or our husband, our children, our parents, one another, 
within this congregation, our neighbor in any way, when we bemoan that, when we fall upon our face before Christ and seek His forgiveness and turn again into the Lord, that is such a testimony of the work of God's grace in a person's life. Rejoice in it, dear ones. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are these. Number one, true faith knows no geographical boundaries. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. And number two, true faith continues to appeal to the mercy of Christ. In Mark chapter 7, verse 26 through verse 30. And our first main point, namely, true faith knows no geographical or even ethnic boundaries. Consider with me Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through the first part of verse 26. And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it. But he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. After the Lord had discoursed with the Pharisees concerning the effect that human tradition had in making void the commandments of God, in making void the worship of God, in Mark 7, verses 1 through 13, and had from there addressed the multitudes concerning the real matter of what defiles a man. Not what goes into his body, but that which comes from his heart defiles a man. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. After those two discourses, he heads north to the regions that lay beyond Palestine, near the cities of Tyre and Sidon. The ancient seaports of Tyre and Sidon were at the time of Christ within the geographical jurisdiction of Syria, Presently, they are within the geographical jurisdiction of Lebanon. Now, some have objected that Christ did not actually leave the soil of Israel in this particular account, but rather went to the area of Israel bordering as far north in Israel, near the general region of Tyre and Sidon. And from there, from Tyre and Sidon, came this woman unto him to be ministered to. This they maintain, those who would take this position, they maintain this to be the case because of the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. There the Lord instructed the disciples as he sent them out Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, as we look at our text in Mark 7, verse 24, this text does not say that Christ went near the borders of Tyre and Sidon, though there is a preposition that could be used to communicate that, it says that Christ went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Furthermore, the word translated coasts in the parallel passage, if you will be jumping back and forth today between Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7, And so you might want to just put your finger, if you're following along, in these two passages. Mark chapter 15, verse 21. 
<clears throat> there we read, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Literally, the word that's translated coast means parts. Parts. And refers to that which is a part of the whole. That is, Christ departed into certain parts within the whole of Tyre and Sidon. Furthermore, I would submit that Christ's words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, which we alluded to and read earlier, did not forbid him from leaving Israel, for they were given to the disciples in regard to their immediate missionary journey upon which he was sending them forth. And so I don't believe that there's any objection that really can be sustained from the Scripture that would in some way prevent Christ from leaving the geographical boundaries of Israel so as to enter into a Gentile land. Why did Christ depart from Israel then to this region of the Gentiles, what is now presently Lebanon? Well, first of all, from a human perspective, our text does not seem to indicate that Christ came to the region of Tyre and Sidon in order to preach and teach to the multitudes. That doesn't appear to be, from a human perspective, why he came. For it states that, in Mark 7:24, he entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. From a human perspective, perhaps Christ departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon in order to temporarily escape the presence of the Pharisees whose hostility toward him was moving from simmer to boil. Or perhaps to remove himself temporarily from the pursuit of the multitudes. You remember the multitudes had just recently wanted to, to force him to become the civil king and to reign from Jerusalem. Or perhaps he retreated to this part of the country to find a place of rest where he and his disciples might replenish their physical strength. Although any or all of these might have occasioned Christ's leave to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, I would submit, however, that there is a more significant reason for Christ retreating to this particular area. And that's secondly, from a divine perspective. From a divine perspective, Christ departed to this Gentile area in order to make clear to all that the gift of salvation was not only for the Jew who descended from the stock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also for the Gentile who had no physical relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is an encouragement to all of us who fall into that category, not being directly related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by way of physical lineage. This is a preview, if you will, dear ones, of God's rich mercy in Christ being poured forth upon the Gentiles of not only Lebanon, but upon all the nations of the world in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham would indeed be the father of many nations, that he would be the father of all believers, and that in his seed, namely in Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Consider with me the description of this woman 
that is a central figure in this account, this Lord's Day. In verses 25 and the first part of verse 26, we'll be focusing our attention now. The first description I'd have you note is her nationality. Verse 26 says the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. When referring to this woman as a Greek, the Holy Spirit uses a word which came to be uh, synonymous with one who is not a Jew. It became essentially synonymous with one who is a Gentile. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where you see this contrast made very clear, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek there would represent, in effect, the non-Jew. Furthermore, in the next chapter in Romans, continuing on with just a couple other examples, beginning with verse 9. And in these passages, the King James Version has translated the word Greek as Gentile. Interestingly enough, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, that is, literally, of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, or literally, to the Greek. Notice the next verse. For there is no respect of persons with God. You see, that is the truth that he is seeking to teach. Whether with, with, with regard to, to uh, God's um, extension of the gospel, the gospel goes, goes out to both Jew and Gentile. Or with regard to justice, justice is brought upon both Jew and Gentile. Reward is brought upon both Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Greek. Now, more specifically, her nationality is identified as a Syrophoenician, since at that time, as I have already mentioned, Tyre and Sidon were within the geographical jurisdiction of Syria. Syrophoenician. Matthew's Gospel, back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, describes her as a woman of Canaan. Now, that probably was not a a very flattering description of this woman, because what it would conjure up in the minds of Jews was that time prior to the people of God crossing the Red Sea and entering into the Promised Land, the Canaanites. Here was a woman whose ancestry went back to the idolatry and the hatred of the one true living God. Here was a woman whose ancestry was not one of of God's covenanted people, but rather those who hated the covenant of God, who were, who were profane idolaters and performed every abominable thing. These were her ancestors. Here is one, dear ones, who nationally and ethnically had no claim at all upon Israel's God or upon Israel's Messiah. And yet... She is graciously brought into covenant with the Lord. You see, this woman embodies, dear ones, the story of your life and mine as undeserving Gentiles who, as as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, were aliens and strangers to the household of God. 
That, is, that was our position by nature. Aliens and strangers who have been brought into the covenanted promises which God had made to His people of old, who have been grafted into that olive tree, which was established in the Old Testament. Not a new olive tree, but the same olive tree. To reap all of those blessings, all of those promises made to Israel in Jesus Christ. You see, Mark's Gospel was intended for the Gentile reader throughout the Roman Empire. And the inclusion of this Gentile woman would encourage other Gentiles not to view Jesus as only the Savior of the Jews. It would also, no doubt, encourage women to come to Christ. Here is a heroine of the faith. Not merely do we have heroes of the faith, but here is a heroine of the faith, one of whom Christ says in Matthew chapter 15, she had great faith in Him. Great faith. One whose faith, whether male or female, we ought to emulate. This account in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15 is reminiscent of Christ's sermon in Nazareth. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, the Lord returned to His hometown of Nazareth. And as was His custom, um, stood up to teach, to read the Word and teach. And because within his own hometown there was such unbelief, and unbelief not only within his hometown, but in various places wherever Christ went, he saw this this latent, hidden unbelief, even though people crowded around him, perhaps more out of curiosity than anything in many cases, or to see these works and these miracles that he performed. Nevertheless, in his own hometown, people began to question, who does he think he is? We know his parents. We know his brothers and his sisters. We know his lineage. He grew up amongst us. Who does he think he is? And Jesus says in verse 24, Luke chapter 4, And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now listen to verses 25 and 26 and see if this doesn't sound vaguely familiar to what we are studying this Lord's Day. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Now, whether this woman in Mark 7 and Matthew 15 was a widow or not, we're not told. But he did minister to a woman in the same area, in the same region. And I would submit to you that he did so for the same reason that he announced to the Nazarenes when he preached unto them this particular sermon in Luke 4. Because they were doubting and disbelieving him, he would show them the kind of faith that is required in order to embrace him. Just as Elijah went in order to demonstrate. He could have been sent by God's grace or mercy to any widow within Israel, but he was sent specifically out of the geographical jurisdiction of Israel to Syria. Why? To illustrate again that wonderful promise that God does pour forth His grace 
as well upon Gentiles as upon Jews. To show that his grace and his mercy is not limited to only the Jewish people. To make them realize that if they do not believe in him, though being the children of the covenant, they will be cut off. They will be excommunicated. That it is ultimately not our nationality that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves. It is Jesus Christ Himself that saves. It is our faith that applies that salvation and brings about union with Him. You see, the very emphasis of the Holy Spirit as to the national and religious origins of this woman demonstrate and show the parallel lesson being taught not only in the sermons of Christ, but now in the practice of Christ as well. He's going beyond. As a preview, he's going beyond into the land of the Gentiles. There was there something to be applied to our lives here as well before moving on. The Jews, as I alluded to earlier, off his branches from their own olive tree, due to their unbelief, due to their pride, due to their hypocrisy. I say it very soberly. We too may fall under the same judgment of God if we follow in their footsteps. If our religion becomes cold and formal and self-righteous, we will find ourselves outside looking in. If our confession, our covenants, our outward forms of worship or our heritage replace our fervor for the Lord Jesus Christ, we will too be cut off like the Jews of old. Praise God for our confession of faith, for our covenants, for our outward forms of worship, for our heritage. They are all means by which we are sanctified. God uses them as an aid in our life to help our faith. But when that replaces the Lord Jesus Christ, when that becomes that for which we work and serve, we will be cut off as the Jews of old. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.12. We stand by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if we lose our first love, Christ will come and he will remove us as a faithful light amongst his churches that is absolutely certain that that will occur if we lose our first love. We will be removed, even as he threatened and warned the church of Ephesus to be removed as a candlestick from amongst the churches there. Dear ones, we are not, as a church, expendable within Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom will go forward with or without us. The only question is, will we be faithful? to Christ. Will we love the Lord with all of our heart and follow in all of His ways? Yes, appreciating all of those standards that are agreeable to His Word, upholding them and defending them as those that are agreeable to His Word, but not making them our object of faith. Only Christ and His truth is not expendable 
Let us therefore, dear ones, forsake all pride and reach out to all peoples, to all tongues, to all nations with the glorious gospel and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not be like the Jews at the time of Christ. The second descriptive item about this woman that is given to us is this. She had heard of Christ and His power to heal the sick, to save the lost and to set the captive free. In Mark chapter 7, verse 25, it says, For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of Him and came and fell at His feet. She heard of Him. Now, We're not told, again, how she heard of him, but this apparently was the only time that's recorded in Scripture in which he actually went into this area. So we would assume that however she heard of him, that it was probably the result of others in her area who came down to Israel, where he was either in Judah or in Galilee, and heard him, and saw him, the wonders and the miracles he performed, and then took the the message of Christ, his gospel, back to Tyre and Sidon. And by that means, dear ones, Christianity was introduced to what is presently now Lebanon, through these faithful witnesses who carried the message back into that area. Because this was one of the converts to Christ as a result of what she heard others proclaim concerning Christ. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, we find these words, But Jesus withdrew Himself with His disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed Him and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. These, no doubt, were the ones who carried the truth that this woman heard. And having heard from others the gospel of Jesus Christ, She had come to embrace Christ. She had come to cling to Christ. Not only as the the Messiah of the Jews, but the Messiah, the Promised One, the Christ, the Anointed One of all who would embrace Him through faith. For she calls out to him in Matthew 15.22. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Thou son of David. She understood here is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. With that conviction firmly settled in her mind, she seeks out the Lord Jesus for the sake of her demonized daughter. How he came to be found by her, we do not know. And Whether there were others who first noticed Christ being in the area, recognized him, and a group formed around him, we don't know how she learned that he was in this area. However, there was a persevering faith Mark it down. A persevering faith will always find the Lord. Even when it seems as if He has hid Himself, a persevering faith will find the Lord. A persevering faith will not give up until the Lord in all of His power and all of His righteousness and mercy is found. Ultimately, dear ones, there are no obstacles that can keep a persevering faith from the mercy and the power of Christ. 
second main point is this. True faith continues to appeal to the mercy of Christ. In Mark chapter 7, verse 26 through 30, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. Let us now, as we look at the second main point, let us consider the potential hindrances to this woman's faith and how her faith perseveres through each seeming obstacle. In order to get the whole picture, let us merge Mark chapter 7, the account found there, and Matthew chapter 15. Let us try to merge these two accounts so as to get the most full picture. Well, the first potential obstacle presented to this woman is that having heard of Christ's mercy to heal from those who shared with her the gospel of Christ, and now having searched for Him and having found Him, the Scripture says she besought Him that He would cast forth the devil. Literally, the demon out of her daughter. Mark 7.26 Now, quite literally, this text says she was continually or repeatedly asking him that he would cast forth the devil or the demon out of her daughter. The emphasis is on continuous repeated acts in past time. But according to Matthew 15, verse 23, though she was repeatedly asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter, Matthew 15, 23 says, he answered her not a word. He acted as though he did not even hear her. You see, dear ones, here her faith is first tried. Here's the first obstacle. Can you imagine yourself in her position? You know that the Lord has miraculously healed multitudes from the reports of others who have shared these reports as eyewitnesses with you. You've come to believe that this is the Messiah, the Savior who saves those from their sins, who place their faith and trust in Him. You have searched for Him out of desperation for the very life of your daughter. And having found Him, you repeatedly plead with Him to have mercy upon you for the sake of your demonized daughter. And he seems to ignore you. It's like you're talking to a wall. There's no response. Is that a roadblock or deterrent, however, to persevering faith? No way. Not at all. At most, it's simply a challenge. Well, if he didn't hear me the first time, I'll ask him a second time. And if he didn't hear me the second time, or he didn't respond as a result of the second time, I'll ask him a third. And if he didn't respond the third time, I'll ask a fourth time. 
persevering faith. Because she knew what she was asking for in seeking mercy from Christ was not out of accord with His will. We can appeal to Christ for mercy at all times. That's what she said. Have mercy upon me, Lord, thou son of David. Now, the Lord, dear ones, is not really being harsh as it would appear here. He is simply testing the quality of her faith, both for her good and her well-being, as well as for our good and our well-being. Because as we now have an opportunity to see what the Lord was doing in hindsight with this woman, we have a way to be able to encourage us to persevere in the faith. To persevere by continuing to beseech the Lord for His mercy regarding various matters in our life or in the lives of our children. To beseech His mercy on behalf of others. To continue to plead with Him. To pour out our hearts before Him and not to give up. Throughout this account... I would submit there's a parallel in the way that Joseph relates to his brethren in Egypt and in the way in which Christ relates to this woman. Joseph related to his brethren in Egypt not because he hated them, not because he despised them, but to see the quality of their repentance of their faith, of their love. And so likewise, Christ would see and demonstrate and manifest the quality of this woman's faith through these particular steps. Behind the stern face of Joseph and behind the stern face of Christ, is a loving and a compassionate heart, praying that this woman's faith will not fail. Praying and anticipating that moment when the gracious countenance of the Lord would be poured out upon her, that she would persevere until that point, that she would not be cast away and fall away, but would cling to to the Lord What I want you to see, dear ones, is that Christ's silence did not discourage the woman from continuing to appeal to Christ's mercy. The second potential obstacle or hindrance that confronted this dear woman is found in Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. And there... We read, But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. It's very interesting that in Matthew 15.23, where it says, and his disciples came, besought him. That's the the same word that's used with regard to the woman in Mark chapter 7, where it says that she besought him. She asked him. And the tenses in both cases are the same as well. Just as she was repeatedly asking the Lord, have mercy upon me, so the disciples were repeatedly asking him, Lord, send her away. What a scene. If you can imagine this. This woman continues to say, Lord, have mercy upon me. And they, as if this is an antiphonal response, they respond, 
Lord, send her away. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, send her away. And we don't know how often this or how much this was going on. But it says this was was repeatedly, the tense that she used there was repeatedly going on. Now, the woman in faith continues to beseech the Lord and the disciples from a, uh, an uncompassionate heart, it would appear, continue to plead for the Lord to send her away because she's making a spectacle of herself. Now, what would possibly be going through your mind at this point again if you were this woman? Who's the Lord going to hear? I mean, it, uh, I'm not saying that this is, she dwelt on this, but that would at least be a temptation. Who is the Lord going to hear? Me or his twelve apostles? His commissioned officers. They want me to be sent away. Well, was that a deterrent? Was that a deterrent to her faith and her perseverance? Not in the least. She continued to say, Lord, have mercy upon me for the sake of my daughter. You see, dear ones, persevering faith in Jesus Christ is not hindered by the sins or by the faults of others even by the sins and faults of ministers and elders who either unintentionally or intentionally would seek or be the occasion of discouraging some of the little sheep of Christ. Persevering faith ultimately doesn't look to the minister, to the elder, to the deacon. Persevering faith keeps his eyes or her eyes upon Christ. And so if an elder or a minister or a deacon does, through their word or through their deed, become the occasion of a potential stumbling block to one of these little ones, persevering faith looks beyond and says, I will not fall due to that person's particular sin or error. I will look to Christ and I will persevere. I will continue on. You see, we can always blame our sin or our failure upon others. We can always find a scapegoat for why we have failed in our Christian life. But ultimately, dear ones, though someone's sin may be the occasion of our own, they are not responsible for our sin. We are. And if we take our eyes off of Christ, as Peter took his eyes off of Christ while walking upon the sea and focused upon the waves, the guilt is ours. Dear ones, what a warning to us who are, however, ministers and elders. This is that we not hinder anyone by our word or deed from laying hold of the truth and the mercy of Christ. How careful we must be that we shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ in truth and in love, in mercy and injustice. That justice and mercy as they kissed in the life of Christ, that they kiss in the life of every minister and every elder. That they are not separated but bound together. And how that should be true, men in your home, as husbands and as fathers, that mercy and justice kiss and embrace one another and do not consider one another foes and enemies but in fact dear friends and lovers if that is the case we will find I think little occasion for offending others if that is indeed 
what is occurring in our church and in our homes. The third potential obstacle comes when the Lord finally breaks His silence in Matthew 15.24 and He says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what the Lord is here saying is this. I have been sent first to invite the Jews, as it were, to the wedding feast. I have not come first to minister in all the heathen nations. There is an order to my ministry. The covenant people of God are called first. But because he does not in this particular passage... Now, he uses that word and he gives the sense of what I've just said in Mark chapter 7, verse 27, where he says, let the children first be filled. So the emphasis, I think, can be inferred that that's what he was saying when he says to this woman that he has been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, again, it could leave the distinct impression with this woman that she was excluded from the mercy of Christ, at least for the present time. If she was interpreted, or if she was inclined to interpret and put the worst construction upon what Christ said, she certainly could have walked away saying, I'm outside the veil of Christ's mercy. But she didn't. Because persevering faith doesn't put the worst construction upon what Christ says upon the truth. She looks beyond what she presently understands to know that the Lord has shown mercy to many in the past and He will continue to show mercy in the future. It clings to the promises of God. The persevering faith, dear ones, of this woman drove her to the Lord and not away from the Lord. For the Scripture says in Matthew 15, verse 25, that she came and worshipped Him, saying, Lord, help me. How many at that point would have fled away from Christ? I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who I've come to minister to. But with this woman who has persevering faith, it doesn't send her away from Christ. It sends her to Christ. It doesn't seem as if anything can deter this woman from the mercy of Christ. And I would... By way of application, dear ones, remind you that there are many things in the Christian life that are hard to swallow. There are many truths which we are to embrace, which are very, very difficult, that have at times various types of consequences with regard to friends and family members because we would be faithful to the word of Christ. It calls us, the truth of Christ calls us to do things that we find very, very uncomfortable at times. Such as picking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Him wherever He leads. Such as not having familiar fellowship with professing Christians who obstinately walk contrary to the commandments of God. And such as loving Christ more than we love any other person or thing upon the face of this earth. However, persevering faith does not flee from following Christ when the truth is hard to swallow. It falls at the feet of Christ in loving and humble submission to His authority and pleads for more and more grace to be faithful, to follow Him more closely. The fourth and final potential obstacle 
is found in Mark chapter 7, verse 27. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. The fourth potential obstacle is that she is likened to a filthy dog. The Gentiles, dear ones, were often likened to filthy dogs or to unclean swine by the Jews. Jesus here acknowledges that the children, that is Israel, are first entitled to eat to their fill of the blessings of God's salvation. That the order of salvation that God himself has established is the Jew first and then the Gentile. Thus, it is not fitting to take the spiritual feast which God prepared for Israel, the children, and to give that feast unto the Gentiles, the Gentile dogs. Here the Lord confronts this woman with her own unworthiness to receive of any blessings from Him. There is a very real sense, dear ones, that we must be smitten with the same truth in our own lives before we can ever enjoy the blessings of salvation. We must be smitten with the truth that we are filthy, unclean dogs before God. Like Mephibosheth of old, who was one of the sons of Jonathan, and David had taken an oath with Jonathan to, to preserve and to care for any of his children or descendants should Jonathan be slain. And when Saul and when Jonathan were indeed slain, Mephibosheth being a lame person, having become lame, lame from youth when he was hurried off the time the Philistines attacked Saul's encampment and having been dropped. Mephibosheth was brought to David and David invited him from that time forward to sit around his table to sit around his table and to eat with the king, to partake of the feast of the king. And Mephibosheth's response was, But my Lord, I am an unclean dog. I am a, like a dead dog before thee. I deserve thy wrath, thy judgment. I am the grandson of Saul, thine enemy. But for the sake of the covenant made between David and his beloved Jonathan. For the sake of that covenant, David poured forth his blessings upon one who was like a dead dog. And so Jesus Christ, if we would enjoy any of the blessings which the Lord offers to us, we must be come like a dead dog, like an unclean dog before him. And so this woman is confronted with this particular issue as well. Her response is given in Mark chapter 7, verse 28. And she says, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, I'm a, do I'm a dog. I confess. I deserve nothing from Thee. I'm a sinner, lost apart from Thee. But, O oh Lord, even as a dog, I simply want to be, if I can't be around the table at this time, I simply want to be near the table and like a dog to eat 
the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. Whatever I can partake of, whatever I can eat of, whatever I can enjoy from Thee, I want to enjoy. You see, dear ones, persevering faith is not turned away from Christ by the revelation of one's own sin and unworthiness, but is rather driven to plead even for the mere crumbs, as it were, of God's salvation. How this would take care of, dear ones, so much of the rivalry that goes on within the church. So much of the boasting. So much of our pride and arrogance. That we are dogs, Gentiles, who have been brought near to the table to partake of the blessings of salvation. Well, the, this persevering faith of this woman is rewarded by the Lord with the mercy which she sought from him. Her daughter is healed, and yet from a distance. He didn't have to go and lay his hands upon her. He, she had the faith, the mother had the faith to believe that if he simply spoke the word, he was able to heal her. The seeming harshness of the Lord turns to a compassionate smile as he pronounces her daughter healed. Dear ones, God gives us faith. He gives us the grace to exercise faith and then He rewards us for our faith. What an amazing God we have. How undeserving we are of His mercy and His grace. In conclusion, I would have you note the truth that Christ hears the prayers of faithful parents who cry out to Him on behalf of their children. Compare Eli with this woman. Eli, who was, we read of even this Lord's Day, appealed to his sons but did not restrain them. We don't know of any prayers which Eli offered on behalf of his sons. But we certainly know of the prayer which was offered by this mother on behalf of her daughter. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous father, a righteous mother availeth much. Cry out to the Lord, dear ones, on behalf of your children, that God's mercy would be poured out upon them, that they would be released, loosed from the hold of Satan in their lives, that they would enjoy the fruits of salvation, that they would walk and live in light of the promises that are made to them in their baptism. That those promises made would come to be received and realized through faith in Jesus Christ in their lives. Your prayers are not in vain, dear ones. Your faith is not in vain in the Lord. Continue to have a persevering faith no matter how far our children may depart from the ways of God, continue to persevere, continue while they're young, while they're old, to pray to the Lord with fervency for your children. The Lord be with you. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the account of this woman, this Lord's Day, that we have read of in Thy Word. We thank Thee for the encouragement that it is unto us to persevere in faith and not to allow any seeming hindrances or obstacles to keep us from pursuing Thee. O Lord our God, we do love Thee purify our love. We do believe in Thee, but help Thou our unbelief. We pray, Father, that Thou would
would bless our children, that Lord God, for a thousand generations, that thy covenant promises would reign upon our children, our grandchildren, and on and on. For, Father, we do not look to ourselves, though, Father, this is a means to bring them to Christ. We look to Jesus. We pray, Father, that Thou would minister unto them. We ask, Lord, all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except in his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.